The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. As I resume the pulpit, I want to continue, though, with a series that I began in September of last year, almost exactly a year to this date, uh, on the life of David called After God's Heart. And before getting into the text this morning that we're going to look at, 2 Samuel 13, I want to do a bit of a more extended review because so much time has passed since we've looked at this Life of David series, okay? Um, At the start of David's life, the, the story of David basically reads like a fairy tale. In dramatic fashion, David is chosen by God out of utter obscurity, And all of his older brothers, who seem like such more worthy candidates, are passed over. And he, as this young shepherd boy, still uh, dirty from working in the fields, uh, is anointed by Samuel the prophet to be the next king of Israel. That drama would continue into the next story of David, which proves his worthiness to be king on the field of battle by defeating this giant Goliath, where these grown men are quivering, totally terrified to face him, even still in his youth. David takes on Goliath courageously because he knows God is with him, and he defeats Goliath. In Bonnie Tyler's 1984 hit, Holding Out for a Hero, off the soundtrack for that movie Footloose, you find these lyrics, I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the end of the night. He's got to be strong and he's got to be fast and he's got to be fresh from the fight. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the morning light. He's got to be sure and it's got to be soon and he's got to be larger than life. Can you picture Kevin Bacon dancing out on that movie? It's kind of seared into my brain. I've watched this so many times. Um, We long for fairy tales in our life. Why? Because I think we long for heroes. Someone who is larger than life, who overcomes obstacles and beats all the odds and is just killing it when no one else is. And that may not be our life, but these fairy tales provide for us a fantasy that a better life is actually out there. It gives us hope that even in our own life, we may rise to something greater, something better in the midst of the struggles that we're currently experiencing. I think that's why fairy tales are so compelling to us. In in fairy tales, everything is so much cleaner, so much more black and white. Things always work out. The good guy always wins. And although David's life may have looked like a fairy tale early on, it quickly descends into a much darker story. The problem is that Israel already has a king named Saul. And even though God has rejected him, Saul is not exactly going to politely step down from the throne and hand his authority over to David. And so for over a decade, David is forced by Saul into the wilderness where he hides in one cave after another, running for his life like an animal. 
And in those wilderness years, the truth is that sometimes David actually does respond with great faith and nobility to the challenges that he is faced with. But the truth is also that sometimes he doesn't. In fact, sometimes David seems to be on the verge of falling apart and losing his faith. You see, the Bible isn't a collection of fairy tales. It's a book that tells honest stories about real people and the real problems and challenges that they encounter to their faith. And the story of David also invites us to reconsider what it means to have a blessed life. Because in the story of David, we're told that God is with David. And yet, despite that fact, his life is filled with heartache and pain. David wrote more psalms than any other single author in the Bible. And yet, more than any other type of song, David wrote laments. Songs of pain, songs of grief, songs of loss. Because David was a man acquainted with disappointment, with pain of loss. After these long years of struggle and suffering and patiently waiting on God, God actually proved to be true to his promises. And he establishes David as king when Saul dies. And under his rule, David will unite a divided nation. And he will secure one military victory after another to establish his rule in the region. David would also capture Jerusalem and establish that to be the nation's capital. And if his story were a fairy tale, that's where the life of David would end. But it's not how the story of David ends. Because in the whole second half of David's life, there would be so much more heartache awaiting for him. And sadly, in the second half of his life, a lot of that heartache becomes self-inflicted. The most famous of these failures was his adultery with, with Bathsheba. Seeing her bathing, begins to lust after her. And though she is another man's wife, he uses his kingly authority to take her for himself. We call it adultery, but it's actually something much harsher than adultery, isn't it? Because there's no mention of whether Bathsheba was a willing participant in any of this. And to top off that adultery, he would go on to murder the husband of this woman, Uriah, in an attempt to cover up what he has done. David may have been a great general. He may have been a gifted musician, but the same couldn't be said for him as a father or as a husband. And we're going to see in these final chapters of the story of David that his family life becomes an utter mess. And that dysfunction of his family is going to spill over into the, into the entire nation. Eugene Peterson, we looked at this quote before, wrote about this life of David. David has little wisdom to pass on to us on how to live successfully. He was an unfortunate parent and an unfaithful husband. From a purely historical point of view, he was a barbaric chieftain with a talent for poetry. 
But David's importance isn't in his morality or his military prowess, but in his experience of and witness to God. Every event in his life was a confrontation with God. I mean, why does David get to go down in history as, quote, a man after God's own heart? It's not because he stood out among us as somebody who lived an exceptionally moral life. He wasn't any more sinless than we were. In fact, the truth is, most of us will go to our grave not committing nearly half the sins that David did. David was a man after God's own heart because in every victory and every failure, it drew him closer to God. Every day, David was coming alive to God more and more. God, in other words, was the greatest reality in David's life, in his successes and in his failures. This is the great lesson that we must learn from this life of David. And with that in mind, I want to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13, the story of Amnon and Tamar. I want to say this, in case there are some younger kids here, uh, I want to warn you that we're going to deal with some pretty mature content, and you have to decide whether it will be appropriate for them. I've tried to couch it in a sensitive language and not be overt about it, But the truth is, the entire story centers around an assault. And if you have kids here, you have to decide whether you're okay with that, okay? Um, What we're first going to do is look at David's failure as a father and his inability to discipline his own children. And then secondly, we're going to look at how this contrasts with God, our father, and the way that he disciplines us. And so let's launch into our first and exploration of David. At times, people have pointed out to me that some of my children look like me. But to be honest, I could never see that resemblance, all right? The truth is, I don't think any of my kids look like me at all, all right? I feel like I have very weak genes or something, you know? Um, But more recently, I've been struck by how much Judah, our youngest, reminds me of myself. Not so much physically, because I actually don't think he looks like me that much physically, but more because of his personality. Uh, When I was young, I was very loud and obnoxious and crazy and out of control. But as I got older, I suddenly went 180 degrees the other way and became this really quiet and introspective person. And the weird thing is I see that exact same pattern happening with Judah. And like him, I used to be so overly sensitive to the wishes of others, uh, to a fault, which resulted in me really struggling with expressing my own opinions or wishes because I would always defer to what other people wanted. And weirdly, I see Judah doing that all the time now, just like I did when he was his age. Like him, I was also very deliberate, even from a young age, in honoring my responsibilities and commitments. If I committed to something, I would do it no matter what the cost. And I see that same spirit in Judah. And all of this sort of ended up reminding me of um, when I was his age, how my father's friends would pull me aside and say, wow, you are so much like your dad. You remind me of your dad in so many ways. 
And then the more I thought about it, it also struck me that my son Judah has so many mannerisms and uh, just behavior that uh, mirrors my father. And even his physical appearance, I'm realizing, is starting to look like my dad. This is a picture of Judah. Okay? I took this picture literally yesterday. (laughs) And I asked him to pose in this very specific way. That wasn't his natural pose. (laughs) He didn't want to do that pose. But I made him pose like that because this is a picture of my father. In the same pose, taken when he was in his 20s, fighting in the Vietnam War. Can you see the resemblance? <laughs> it's freaky, right? It's striking how family traits get handed down from one generation to the next. But it's more than just physical appearances, isn't it? As parents, the choices that we make, the things that we value, in other words, all of the things that are often more caught than taught by our children, all have such a big impact on the people that they will grow up to become. John Woodhouse says this, Here's a terrifying thought. The faults and failings of parents are often reproduced in their children. Good looks and intelligence are not the only things that are passed on from one generation to the next. We who are parents shape our children in many ways, in our own image. Sometimes we take pride in that, but it is a terrifying thought. It is terrifying, isn't it? To think about our kids picking up the things that we struggle with, that we see in ourselves. And this was painfully true of David. I don't think that it's an accident that the story of David and Bathsheba is immediately followed by the story of Amnon and Tamar. David and his wife Ahinoam had a son named Amnon. So he was David's firstborn. He was the heir apparent to David's throne. David had a second son named Kiliab through his wife Abigail. But scholars suspect that Kiliab may have died, maybe even as a child, because after the announcement of his birth, there is never another mention of this son again. And so as a result, David's third-born son, Absalom, born through his mother, Makkah, becomes second in line to inherit David's throne after Amnon. And Absalom has a sister named Tamar. She, in fact, is the only daughter of David's that's given a name. We don't know the names of any of his other daughters. And the tragic events that are about to unfold in the chapter we're going to look at center around Amnon and Tamar, who are half-brother and sister, both of them father of Father is David, but to different mothers, okay? Now, David had numerous other wives and children, but for the sake of our story, we're not going to look at all the full family tree of David. Uh, These are the only ones that really matter to us for this story. We know almost nothing about this woman, Maka, 
But one thing that we can conjecture is she must have been quite a looker, okay? Because both Absalom and Tamar are noted to be exceptionally beautiful. I mean, knock, knock down, drop dead, gorgeous people, okay? Um, and so this is what happens as the story unfolds in verses 1 to 2. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister, Tamar, that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Amnon is lovesick with a forbidden love because Tamar is his half-sister. And there's this cousin named Jonadab who finds out what's going on, and he ends up hatching a plan to help Amnon get what he wants. And so verses 5 to 6, it says, the words of Jonadab, go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I might eat it from her hand. And the plan seems to have worked because in verse 7 to 11 it says this, David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. You can imagine the horror that Tamar must have experienced in that moment. She's totally caught off guard. As far as she knew, in her innocence, she thought she had come to simply aid her brother who was ill and to comfort him in the midst of his sickness by making some food for him. And she had no clue of his actual intentions. And so she begs him not to do what he is about to do. And she appeals not only to what would happen to her, but also what would happen to him. In verses 12 to 13, no, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He would not keep me from being married to you. This last argument is kind of strange because the law of Moses clearly forbids any kind of relations between a sister and a brother. But what scholars suspect is that this is her final desperate act to try to avoid what seems to be the unavoidable and just say, listen, just ask our father and he will give me to you in marriage. 
But it doesn't work because we're told in this chapter that Amnon is stronger than Tamar. And so he has his way with her. And after the assault, verse 15 says this, then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. Sin has this incredible power to deceive us, doesn't it? And for Amnon, this deception took the form of whatever fantasy he had constructed around this unquenchable lust that he had for his sister. And there was no way that that moment when he acted on that fantasy could live up to the fantasy. Especially not with a woman who was utterly unwilling to participate. And so once the act is done, the bubble is burst. The fantasy is over. And Amnon is filled with disgust and loathing for what had just happened. And in that moment that that fantasy disappears, all he can see in Tamar is a witness to the unthinkable ugliness of what he had just done. And so all of the desire that he had for this woman is in an instant shifted to utter hatred and disgust. And he wants to get rid of her. And so in verse 16, it says, No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. This is also confusing to the modern reader. What Tamar is in essence asking her brother to do is to marry her, to marry her. Why in the world would he want to, she want to marry this guy who had just done this to her? It reveals how cruel life could be for women in those days. Because the truth was after that act, no man in Israel would be willing to marry this woman, no matter how beautiful she was. She would have to spend the rest of her days with no hope for a life now that she's been violated. But Amnon shows the depth of his evil when he even refuses her this simple mercy and says, he called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. Tamar is devastated. She makes her way to her brother's house, Absalom. And he does his best to console her. But Tamar's fate is sealed. We're told that she would spend the rest of her days to the end of her life living in her brother's house as a desolate woman. And before we look any deeper into the lessons that we want to learn from this story, I think it's important that we don't reduce Tamar into nothing more than an object lesson. 
We need to first feel the full weight of what was done to this woman and see the ugliness and devastation of the sin inflicted on her. She will never get to experience the joy of marriage and of children of her own. Because in those few horrific moments, her life was stolen from her by her brother. The story continues. I did not want to return to the pulpit with this story, okay? But this is the word of God, and we need to wrestle with why is this in the Bible? What is it that we're supposed to understand from this? And in verse 21 to 22, it says this, when King David heard all this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. When David hears what has just happened, he is enraged. He is enraged. But that rage is followed by a deafening silence. In his anger, David proves to be an impotent father who does nothing. And we don't know why this is so. We can only guess. Was it because he realized he was actually an unwitting participant in Amnon's scheme and that he had basically sent his daughter to this guy's house to be assaulted? Or was it because what happened with his son and daughter was so uncomfortably similar to what he had done to Bathsheba that he didn't have the strength to deal with this? Or maybe the truth is David just felt overwhelmed by the unthinkable brokenness of the whole situation. His own son assaulting his own daughter. Others have suggested that it might have been because of David's misguided love for Amnon. In fact, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, there's a verse there that's missing in our Bibles that actually tells us that David loved Amnon right after this verse. And so in that misguided love for his son, he didn't have the heart to punish him despite the crime that he had committed. Whatever the reason, I think we can empathize with David, at least to the extent of what an incredibly difficult situation that he was facing as a father. You know, tell David to defeat an enemy army, and he's all over that. He knows what to do. But what does a victory even mean in a situation as broken as this? How do you fix a problem like this that is that messed up? David's impotence and silence as a leader of his family is going to create an unhealthy vacuum that his son Absalom is more than willing to fill. Basically, Absalom feels this. If my father knows what just happened, 
and is not going to do anything, then I will. I will be the one that will seek justice for my sister. And we're told in the very next verse that Absalom was also silent, just like David was. But Absalom's silence is different than David's because it's a calculated silence. Absalom will patiently wait for the right moment. And that moment would arrive two years later when he hatches his own plan to invite Amnon and all of his brothers to go on a trip to shear all of the family's sheep. And in verse 28 to 29, the events unfold like this. Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules, and fled. So in the chaos of Abnon's murder, all the brothers assume that Absalom intends to kill them all. And so terrified, they all run away on their mules. And in that chaos, somehow news reaches the ear of David that Absalom has killed all of his sons. It's interesting that Jonadab comes back into the scene at this point. And he reassures David, Amnon is the only one that was killed. Your other sons are fine. Clearly, this guy Jonadab was also in on this murder plot. And sure enough, eventually David's other sons do show up in Jerusalem at the palace. And together with the surviving sons and David, we're told that they weep bitterly, mourning the death of Amnon. Absalom will seek asylum in his grandparents' house, and he'll hold himself up there for the next three years as he plots his next move. And we'll see in the coming chapters how that descends into even more brokenness and more problems. What are the deeper lessons we can learn from a story like this? I want to begin by directing you back to an earlier story in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When God made a covenant with David. And in that chapter, if you remember it, David says, I want to build a house for God, for all that he's done for me. And then God replies to David, you will not build me a house. I will build for you a house. And I will make your kingdom endure forever. And he reminds David of all of the things that he had faithfully done for David over all of his years. But couched in all of this encouraging language are these verses that seem really out of place to us. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 to 16, it says this, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. 
When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. In other words, I think there is a contrast being made here between David's inability to discipline his children and a God who tells David, I will not withhold discipline from your children. My faithfulness to you, my commitment to you, my love for you will be to discipline your children. But the discipline that God is talking about to David is not a discipline of vengeance. It is not an eye for an eye. It, as God argues, will be an expression of his love and commitment to David. In fact, God's discipline is an essential part of this covenant. Because David and his descendants were not just going to be passengers along for the ride. They would be active participants in God's plan. And in order for them to participate in God's purposes, they had to grow and learn from God's discipline in their life. This is the same message that God would give to David himself through the prophet Nathan after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And what God, in essence, says to David is, trouble is going to fall on your family, even into the next generations, because of what you have done this day. This isn't about God getting even or settling the score with David because of his sin. But it is about David's good. Because as a military and political leader, David had no equal. And he was arguably the greatest poet of his generation. But his disastrous home life exposed some very deep flaws in David as a man. Let me see if I could try to explain it a little more clearly. In theological terms, we make a distinction between what we can call God's active and passive wrath. And it's important to understand the distinction between the two. God's active wrath refers to those moments when God takes direct action in response to sin. It's basically God's judgment coming upon us, like Sodom and Gomorrah, like the flood of Noah. This is what we would call God's active wrath against sin. But there is another expression of his wrath that we can call passive wrath. And that is when God allows the natural consequences of our choices to take place without his intervention. Because what we do know is that at times, God's mercy toward us is displayed when he spares us of the consequences of our poor choices. And thank God for that, right? Because if we had to suffer the consequence of every wrong choice we made, none of us would survive. But that is God's mercy. But in his love for us, 
as painful as it may be, he will often allow us to experience these consequences so that we can learn and grow from them. The Bible makes it very clear that Jesus took the punishment we deserved on himself when he died on the cross. Isaiah 53 verse 5 expresses it most eloquently. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And so, because God put our punishment on Jesus, we don't have to bear that punishment ourselves. And so if we put our trust in Jesus, God's punishment toward us is always an expression of his love and commitment to us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 through 11, a passage that I'm sure many of you are very familiar with. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And as strange as it sounds, even Jesus himself submitted to that discipline of the Heavenly Father. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, it says, speaking of Jesus, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Even Jesus modeled for us the life of submitting to God's discipline in order to learn, in order to grow. And clearly, in the example of Jesus, it could not be about God punishing him because he was perfect in his righteousness, at least before he went to the cross. And the truth is this. We always wish we could escape the consequences of our bad choices, don't we? In fact, it feels like sometimes our entire relationship, God, centers around that. Spare me, God. Help me, God. Be merciful. But I want you to imagine something. Imagine an all-powerful father who uses that power to bail his children out of every bad thing that they ever do. And the truth is, that's a terrifying prospect, isn't it? If your father could wipe out every bad test score you ever got as a student, would you ever study (laughs) If your father could cancel every debt that you would incur in your life, what would your spending habits look like? You see, the troubles that would visit David in his later life were not random. They were the culmination of years of choices that David had made as a husband and as a father. As the expression goes, the chickens have come home to roost. 
And the truth is, I don't think David would have challenged any of us if we accused him of being a bad husband and a bad father. And yet, even through all of this, David was learning how to cling to God and his mercy toward him. And this may be a view of God that is not very popular among us, but it's one that we must absolutely understand about God, is that in his love, just as God did with David, he is going to discipline us. He isn't going to spare us of some of the consequences of the choices that we make in our life. And he does it because through that discipline, he wants us to learn. He wants us to grow. He wants us to understand. One of the greatest barriers I find as your pastor when I do counseling in our church is to get beyond this constant struggle in our pain that says, why me? Why is this happening to me? I don't get it. It's not fair. I don't deserve this. And there is a huge journey involved there to get from that place of why me to what is God trying to teach me that I must learn? Could there be something going on inside of me that explains what's happening in my family, in my marriage, in my career, in my children? Because that is God's love for you. The lessons that David was going to have to learn were unbelievably painful to him but they were absolutely necessary to complete the work that God had begun in David's life. And I think the truth is the instinct in every single one of us is that when we realize the consequences of some of the things we've done, all we want is God's mercy. And you know, it's okay to ask for it. I think it's okay to ask God for that mercy. But the truth is that sometimes the greatest act of love that God is going to extend to us is to allow us to go through that consequence so that we can grow and understand and learn just as David did. Let's pray. As we uh, close out our worship today, I want to invite you and challenge you to reflect on this in your own heart. And ask yourself, um, what are you learning these days from God's discipline in your life? And I I suspect even asking that question for many of us, it's kind of disorienting. Because we don't really think in that frame of mind, do we? When we're going through struggles and we're experiencing pain, I don't think a natural place for us to go is God's discipline. And when we think about God's discipline, I think often we think very wrongheadedly about it as punishment of God getting even. God is getting back at me because of that thing I did. But I think as we look at the life of David, what we see is this unending commitment that God has to David. And the way that it is expressed sometimes, as difficult as it is to accept, is through God's discipline of David. It says, David, I love you. 
But it doesn't mean I'm going to give you a pass for all of this. You have made some choices in your life. And I'm going to allow you to go through the consequences of those choices so that by doing so, you might learn, you might grow. You can become more and more like my son, Jesus, by what you are learning. So can I just invite you to just come to God in prayer? And maybe there are things going on in your life that feel almost equal to what David is feeling. Maybe you feel speechless too. Maybe you feel utterly impotent to fix some things in your life that are just so overwhelming that you're looking at it and say, I don't even know what the solution is. I don't know how you fix something like this. And I want you to know that even in that, that the message is that God loves you and that he intercedes for us. And he's always on our side. He is always for us because of what Christ has done. And in that confidence, we can always turn to him and look to him for the help that we need. And maybe in that prayer, part of that prayer could be, God, show me, teach me. Let me see and let me understand what I am blind to right now in my own heart. Would you just pray that prayer for a few minutes and our worship team is going to come and lead us in a time of response through singing. Let's pray.